Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, Episode 21. My name is Christopher Luff. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, I'm going to be sitting down with Matt Bromley to talk about some of the latest intel coming out of our community Slack channel. And after that, I interviewed Nick Gibson, Director of Cyber Operations at Pareto Cyber. Hey, Matt Bromley, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Good to see you, as always. Yeah, uh, I wanted to create a new space on the show where we could talk about some of the cutting-edge intel we're getting from the community on the Lima Charlie Slack channel. It seems like some great stuff, and I really think our listeners would benefit from getting the sort of breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think also uh, it's a huge um, opportunity. It's in our community Slack for anyone who hasn't joined yet or anyone who's not familiar. Our community Slack has some really good community-based channels inside of them that anyone who's using Lima Charlie or wants to use Lima Charlie can join and can get some really great insight on how to utilize the tool, utilize the product, various parts of the of Lima Charlie, um, all sorts of options in there. And our uh, Intel and Detections channel are like really, really good resources about these. And they offer really quick insights about threats that we're seeing out there in the world. But they also have usually foster discussions on how to detect these kinds of things as well. So it's a really cool, like, uh, you know, not only information source, but also a detection resource as well. Great. Uh, and before we get into it, I want to specifically thank Josh Tremblay from Hyperview Security for taking the initiative to create the Intel channel and continuing to be the driving force behind it. You know, as one of the founders of this company, one of the most rewarding things I've been seeing is watching this community develop it and watching people share knowledge and kind of push the mission forward in a way that's not specific to any outcome other than building a better security posture for everybody. So thanks very much for that, Josh. Yeah, Josh has really been leading the charge and doing an awesome job on that. So uh, another thanks from me as well. (laughs) All right. So uh, looking at the Intel, uh, as everybody's probably aware, Microsoft recently disabled macros in Office documents, but bad actors have pivoted over to OneNote. I just recently saw on the Intel channel that there are some QBot campaigns running that are leveraging GSE files in OneNote payloads. Is there anything you can expand on here, Matt? Yeah, so I think the idea of hiding malicious code inside of something Microsoft-related has long been a favorite thing of attackers to do uh, for a couple different reasons. One, Microsoft applications are usually uh, on allow lists and are allowed to kind of run anything. Uh, And for a lot of organizations, the idea of running code inside of Microsoft Office is actually just part of normal business operations. Uh, However, you are right. Microsoft recently has gone through. Now, I will say it's an up and down thing. Uh, sometimes they disable them and then there's pushback from some multi-billion dollar client and then sometimes they turn it back on. But nonetheless, uh, I think what's happened is uh, attackers have gone the route of saying, all right, well, if I can't embed my malicious code into Excel or Outlook or Word the way that I used to be able to do that, what's another Microsoft Office resource? And I would have told you years and years ago that OneNote was not as common as you think, but now the Microsoft Office suite and platform is so tightly integrated that it's likely you're going to find OneNote on the same systems as well. In fact, it's likely that users who have Microsoft Office will use OneNote. So what we're seeing is adversaries burying malicious code, uh, either in the form of like JavaScript or an HTA file, which may also be JavaScript or some embedded sort of thing that the user has to double click, and then sending the OneNote files out directly. Uh, This does thwart a few, uh, I would say, legacy or static detections, if you will, um, a lot of detections in the past have been written for very specific like docx or xlsx files 
Whereas OneNote comes in at a dot OneNote extension, I believe, which might not always be on the scan list, if you will. In fact, it might be on the allow list because OneNote files can be huge databases. We might not want to push those through any sort of automated scanning. But what happens is uh, as an adversary, you want to get code onto a system, code that the user can run without too much help or support, if you will. And a OneNote file is a really easy way to kind of sneak that in there. And again, take advantage of the Microsoft Office suite, which unfortunately just so many folks do have. Uh, I'll add on to our detections channel recently talked about things to look for here. Um, You can certainly across Lima Charlie look for things like file creation events and uh, look for also malicious signatures that you might find inside of those files. This is where key tools like Yara come into play. Uh, So certainly opportunities to detect them. But is it a it, it is a sneaky little technique that adversaries are starting to use. Uh, another item that caught my eye was the beat malware. It seems to be employing some really advanced evasion techniques. Uh, it appears to drop some files, but then those files can't be retrieved from VirusTotal. What do you know about this? Yeah, so beep is one of these crazy cases. We see this with malware. I don't want to say every now and then. Maybe it's a little more common than, than I'll make it out to be. But sometimes you see malware that has uh, really kind of neat features about it. And I don't mean to give credit to uh, a malware author in that case. But sometimes malware is just written with really, really interesting, evasive behavior, right? Good code is is good code. And I'll obviously only promote one side of writing good code. But an evasive technique is is still on its own, just a piece of code. Uh, The Beep malware, which actually gets its name from the Beep API function, which it it calls, and that's a, a way that it delays execution, which I'll talk about in just a moment. The Beep malware is one of those that is just completely loaded up with various different techniques that are out there. Uh, It has been kind of detected or reported as a spreader malware or a dropper, which means its initial or its purpose, if you will, is to get on the system and then likely deploy other pieces of malware, download other pieces of malware, or perhaps unpack other pieces of malware. However, it's got such a ridiculous suite of evasion techniques built into it that it really kind of runs the gamut of all the evasion techniques you you might want to have into a piece of malware. Uh, It's got various obfuscation techniques in the strings. It has some language checks that will render it useless if it runs into certain languages that it doesn't want to infect. You can take a guess as to which Eastern European languages it prefers, if you will. (laughs) Uh, There's all sorts of um, various functions that are looking for debuggers. There's a VM awareness. There are uh, other sorts of function calls in there that are looking, again, for the presence of some sort of reverse engineering tool or some sort of debugger or some sort of break taking place. Um, It's got all really kinds of crazy, uh, I'm going to call them VM aware or analysis aware functions built in. And, And these are designed to look for the presence of a malware analysis environment. So when a piece of malware is pushed up into a sandbox or on a researcher system, it's obviously not executed on a live production system. It's executed in a sandbox and the results of that are recorded. Well, if your malware is sandbox aware, it's not going to run in that case. So what it does is it prevents that sort of uh, static or dynamic analysis that we might be used to seeing from some malware authors or automated tools. The other thing it's got built into it, and this is the beep name where it comes from, This is uh, what it uses to delay execution. So not only do we see malware with evasive techniques that detect a sandbox, but malware authors have also realized that a lot of dynamic or automated analysis tools, they'll run for 
a minute, two minutes, five minutes. In some cases, it really depends. But the VM won't run forever in perpetuity. You know, imagine if you submitted a piece of malware for a sample and uh, you said, hey, you got to wait 30 days to get your sample back because we're going to let the VM run for 30 days. That Mm -hmm. obviously would make no sense to anyone whatsoever. So what adversaries do is they'll drop in uh, wait timers, if you will, that force the malware not to execute immediately, but actually to wait a period of time. Now, in the world of dynamic analysis, one minute, two minute might be the length of the VM. You're not going to see any results. It's going to come across as an innocuous file. But in the length of a user workstation who's going to be up for hours at a time, five minutes, 10 minutes here or there is absolutely nothing. The malware will still execute and still run. The name comes from the uh, beep function, which has to do with tones that are generated on the speaker. And it's a way of forcing the system to wait to execute the code. It's pretty much the same functionality as the sleep API function. But once again, we've got detections in place for executables that utilize the sleep API function. So it's another way to stay hidden and again, evade some common analysis and detection techniques. Are these kind of advanced evasion techniques usually the fingerprint of like an APT, or is this something we see in, in organized crime as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Chris. I would say over the years, it started out as like an advanced APT thing, um, because those that was where most of the I want to keep my malware hidden would live, right? Uh, we didn't have this proliferation of ransomware and other things like we have now. APT used to be the silent and stealthy, whereas everything else was kind of loud and proud and out there. Uh, however, as time has gone on, some of these techniques have been so well blogged about, so well documented, so well talked, so well you know taught and talked, if you will. Um, there's open, you know, there's public repositories in, in GitHub and other Git resources that might show you how to implement these functionalities. So my point is, it used to be what I would consider a pretty advanced technique that you would see maybe every now and then. Whereas now I think it's fairly simple or easy for malware authors to integrate that functionality if they want it to. And then to uh, potentially, again, utilize that despite not being really severe malware. Um, if you think about the goal of a malware author, just like an APT, an organized crime, a financially motivated a hacktivist, or someone deploying a browser adware toolbar, the goal of the malware is to run at the end of the day, right? So if I'm someone who needs to get my malware to run and I'm publishing something, I might not consider myself the stealthiest of malware authors, but I still want to get my stuff to run. So I might go research what some of these evasion techniques look for. What I will say is the sheer number of techniques that we see jammed into the beat malware, some reason tell me that someone just wanted to evade as much as they possibly could. What you would normally see in an APT style situation is not all of these techniques built into one. You would usually see techniques that were relevant for the targeted environment built in. So, for example, if I know that my target environment utilizes tool XYZ to analyze malware, then the only obfuscation evasion techniques I'm going to drop in are going to be for tool XYZ. The thing there is the more stuff I pack into my malware, the more opportunities for detection I create. The more opportunities for someone to write a really complex Yara signature, for example, and I may not ever use 90% of the techniques that I've got built in there, but I'm giving more opportunities for defenders to find them. So, you know, 
I obviously don't have any confirmation of this, but my thought is when you see this much stuff packed into one, it feels a little bit like overcompensation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, that's not to say that it's not some sort of advanced threat actor who just really wanted to play it safe. (laughs) Interesting. Um, Bypassing MFA seems to be becoming normalized. We've seen this in a bunch of recent high-profile attacks, and people on the Intel channel are pointing to evil Nginx as a sophisticated credential harvester. Can you tell us a little bit about how this works? Yeah, so this uh, this is something that I think adversaries of all kinds have wanted for a, a long period of time. Now, I will say, um, e- yeah, I think it's, is it, is it Evil Genix, Evil Nginx, Evil Genix? I can't remember. Um, it's something that's been around for a little while, but what that does is it, I believe it actually hooks into um, things like Microsoft Azure, for example, and will actually allow attackers to bypass the always-on MFA that is part of office uh, office plans that are set up. And this is something that adversaries have wanted to get around for a long time. Uh, it's been very widely touted amongst information security professionals that MFA would neutralize a bunch of different attacks that are out there. The thing about that is, uh, as long as an adversary can't get a hold of your two-factor credentials, then you're all set and good to go. Uh, however, if there's a way for me to get a hold of your two-factor credentials, and we've certainly seen all sorts of MFA spoofing and different things like that take place, that's, that's one option. If there's a way for me to get in and turn off your MFA, then I can just use simple username and password to access your resources. Or if there's a way for me to programmatically bypass it. And the third option is probably where this type of toolkit comes in. But of course, there's two parts to any toolkit. Uh, The first is I need to steal credentials from the user. And then I need to be able to go in and either change or bypass their MFA settings if they're even enabled. For a lot of adversaries, this is a very roundabout process. Going and stealing credentials and then going to Microsoft Azure and validating those credentials and trying to determine, is this legitimate? Um, is this something that has MFA enabled? How can I use this to my advantage? Can I actually use these credentials? So on and so forth. All those types of questions leave more traces and more footprints along the way. Now, there are definitely some adversaries out there who will certainly uh, use, you know, not don't really care about leaving that many traces, and you'll you'll certainly see this happen. Um, however, in in other cases, we have adversaries who want to stay a little bit more silent. They want to stay a little more quiet. So what they'll do instead is they'll look for programmatic ways because a programmatic API call falls very much under the radar as opposed to me trying to log into a user account and continuously getting kicked out, maybe getting the user locked out, which may result in a help desk call or something like that. And that's again not really a place where I want to be. So this type of uh, setup, this type of uh, MFA bypass, if you will, especially the fact that it is a credential harvester, serves two purposes. First, it serves as that fake-looking Microsoft or Office 365 login screen that's going to steal my credentials. That's step one, fool the user into giving you credentials. Step two is programmatically reaching out or tying back into the Azure backend in order to get back some data or figure out whether MFA is enabled and bypass it if need be. I went and did a little bit of research uh, before this, you know, to to look into this one a little bit. And I did discover that there are some researchers out there who have found about a 50% success rate, especially against Office E3 with the always on MFA option. That's, That's one that's out there. Uh, some recommended mitigations would be to actually, and I know not a lot of folks are going to like this, but you could upgrade the account that drops some different types of MFA protections in place, number one. 
the other option is to also utilize different types of uh, conditional access controls that are built into Microsoft Azure as well. The other little note I'll add on here outside of things like, um, you know, this particular toolkit, which may sometimes seem very Microsoft focused, is the idea of stealing MFA to break into an environment is not just limited, obviously, to Microsoft environments. It's limited to any environment that has MFA turned on. So a lot of the rules that we learn about MFA often involve the end user. Don't accept, you know, if, if you didn't request a code, don't provide that code to anyone. If you have, um, like, Duo has that famous push option where you can just hit a button as opposed to receiving a code, right? If you receive a push notification that you did not expect to see, don't click OK. There's all sorts of, um, you know, defensive mechanisms that are wrapped around the user. So we're still placing the trust and the security of MFA in the user's hands by hoping amongst everything that they're doing, and Chris, you and I both know how busy we are, (laughs) placing the trust into everything they're doing and simply saying, by the way, if you don't recognize it, don't click it. Yeah. Okay, well, that sounds very much like phishing mitigation to me, which is if you don't recognize that link, don't click it, and yet phishing remains one of the most successful entry vectors out there. My point being this, this type of bypass, these type of toolkits, they go around that user defense. And instead, they hit the back end directly and take advantage of some weaknesses in the uh, various types of subscriptions and plans that you'll find in services like Microsoft Azure. So I will say companies like Microsoft often work to patch and fix these things as, as quickly and as often as they can. But MFA in general, it's a luxury to have because it does eliminate a certain tier of attacks, but it also makes another tier of attacks possible. Simply because, again, we've we've got an additional step that may be programmatically or inadvertently uh, avoided, as opposed to being kind of this wall of security that no one gets through. Hmm. That's very interesting. The Microsoft Tier Three, you know, security as a paywall seems like a very Microsoft thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I got to say, it's uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting way to get folks to upgrade. You know, to upgrade is to say, hey, I have additional features that I know you likely want, and I'm going to make you pay 60% for 40% functionality, which you want, but the other 60% hope you might utilize one day, Yeah, you know? Um, but nonetheless, it's it's an interesting, it's still an interesting position because a lot of us think the other way. Why on earth would you not just push a good security control all the way down through your entire stack? Why would you not just make it the same for everybody in the name of good security? Hmm. That's a question for other folks, of course, <laughs> not for you or me. But yeah. I would maybe go on the side of uh, the, you know, I would err on the side of if you if you are running security for an organization and you see an opportunity to upgrade or enhance your security capabilities, by all means, go after it. Because I promise you, everything that's out there, there's some adversary who's trying to find a way around it. Awesome. Well, Matt, I really appreciated this chat. I think we'll probably do more of these. Um, It was great chatting with you. Likewise, Chris. Thank you. And to all of our users and listeners, thank you very much. See you again soon. Next up, my conversation with Nick Gibson, Director of Cyber Operations at Pareto Cyber. Thanks for being here with us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, To get started, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us what it is your company does and what your role is there? Sure. So I'm the Director of Cyber Operations at Pareto Cyber. We are an MSSP that focuses on XDR services for our clients. 
I specifically manage the 25 by 7 security operations and incident response portion of, of the XDR service. Uh, so my whole thing is, you know, detection and defense and response. So what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, I wear a lot of different hats uh, during the day. Um, I start off with, you know, mentoring analysts and, and, and training them throughout the day. And you're just really being there for them when they need me. Uh, leading them within our, the forensic investigations that we have to do throughout any given day that pops up. Um, I might be meeting with the development team, uh, talking about how we're going to add more automation into our security operations center. And then, of course, at the end of the day, meeting with the, the C-suite clients and you know, talking about how to advance and grow their security program. One of the services I see your company provides is a cybersecurity audit. Can you walk me through what is involved in performing a cyber audit? How do you roll it out? What are the things you're looking for? Stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. So it, cyber audits are really come down to, you know, a five-step process. First being the documentation portion of it. That's gathering all the documentations needed for the company. Things like incident response plan, disaster recovery plans, continuation of operations plans. All those things are going to be needed as the foundation for your security posture uh, as a whole. So that's what the first thing that the auditor is going to want to look for. Uh, next thing is assessing your your risk as a company. Each company is a little bit different in terms of risks and you know identifying those is critical towards the audit. Next step, we're going to be taking those risks and identifying the security measures and controls to either mitigate them or eliminate them completely. And then also goes back to more documentation on, on how those things go happen and the process you go about taking that again back to the first one with the documentation. And then we have assessing whether our, the plans are going to be actionable. You make the plan and then you in, enact the plan and see if it actually works and it, it, it mitigates that sort of thing. So, so is for this example, like tabletop exercises, stuff like that. Yep, exactly. Yep. For, or, or let's say we wanted to make a patch on a firewall because it was vulnerable for something, you would want to do that in a development environment first to check it out and not just roll it in hot into production. So things like that, tabletops, but also getting a developer saying this could actually work, we can do this and it won't affect our day-to-day -day operations as a business. And then after that is the follow-up. We got You always have to follow up with all these, uh, the, the vulnerabilities that are found and findings that are found and, you know, make sure that they are, you know, truly mitigated and closed. Very cool. It sounds like interesting work. Uh, as a cybersecurity practitioner looking out at the vendor marketing noise, what are your thoughts? What are the people who are selling you cybersecurity tools and solutions doing that is right? And what is it that they're doing wrong? The thing that where they're doing right is everyone's starting to go towards this XDR service platform. And really what XDR is, is what security teams have been, should have been doing from the beginning. So if we can kind of roll it back to this like historical view of incident response and security operations, you can start to see a pattern where we started with just raw logs, text files downloaded from firewalls and control effing through each of those, of those files. Then we said, that's too much data. We need uh, a, one single place to put all that data. So the SIM was created. Well, really, the log aggregator was created. And then the SIM with on top of that to add in some AI and machine learning capabilities. But where the XDR covers that gap is bringing in not only 
on the SIM and security data, but also engaging the other teams as well. You know, all those together become a single unit that is focused on a singular task of securing the environment as a whole. And that's really XDR is buy-in from all components within the business to say we are going to proactively do our security. Where I see the industry going wrong is really that uh, the portion of it where it starts to, we need automation in the sock because of how many alerts are coming in or whatever. We need to be able to automate for the analysts, not automate the analysts completely. So we need to be able to bring in, you know, using maybe a SOAR platform to centralize all that automation, be able to ingest security data and run extra searches on it through APIs. We can pull in more data from the AD to cross-correlate with that. We can search across time and and realm with different sort of things. And it's really, that's the main portion of XDR is getting all that data into a single place so that you can then manipulate that data to find things that normally you couldn't find before. So not replacing the analysts through automation, but augmenting them to be able to perform better Yes, 100%. Uh, I mean, in, in the SOC that I w- I've built for Pareto, uh, we're at an 80% automation rate. So all of our tier one and two SOC, uh, SOC operations are completely automated. So our analysts are tier three and above. And when they get a case in, it's already has all the information filled out. All the normal open source intelligence searches they would have to do are already done and completed. You know, searching an AD and other sources within the client is already completed. And they can then focus on looking at the whole picture of what's going on and making a determination that way. So I mean, that's I think that's the the point where we're at. We're right now we either have no automation or you have too much automation. So you have products that have no automation, so you're just doing regular security work, and then you have products that are out, supposed to be out of the box, you know, good to go. You put it on the network and it and it does everything, but it doesn't always work very well. Yeah, we're not there yet. Uh, is there specific tools that you're using to automate with inside of your SOC or is it sort of, you know, home cooked? No, I mean, we use uh, SOAR platforms are, you know, for us, we use Swimlane, but I know other people use D3 Security and uh, Red Hat's Shift, I believe it's called, um, their SOAR platform. And it's SOAR platform is a SOAR platform. There are a lot of different ones that have a lot of different features. And it's really just what comes down to, you know, use cases and things like that. But the biggest thing is just getting that product in place to then bring it centrally. I mean, you could even roll your own if you wanted to with a, with a Windows server and Python scripts and, uh, scheduled tasks. I mean, it's, right. it's the same sort of concept, but the really the biggest portion is getting all that data into a centralized area to be able right. to do that. Um, so what are your thoughts on detection engineering? How important is it for organizations to invest in building and maintaining custom detection logic? It's extremely important. Um, and it goes back to the that full automation sock that I was talking about. The, the, the way we have right now, I mean, it's getting better with the new AIs. That, but right as it sits now, the automation comes onto a network and just sits there. It's slapped on and not tuned correctly at all. So it's just going to fire constant false positives onto the team, causing actually more work. Really where the AI needs to catch up is covering that gap between just throwing false positives and actually being able to tune the AI product to your environment so that it can work for you and proactively for you 
and not just, oh, well, that's just another false positive that we need to either tune or uh, in some in some of those products, uh, the, the fully automation ones, you're not even able to tune your rules. So that's becomes you turning off the rule instead of tuning it. And that's just terrible. That's terrible security. Uh, do you have a favorite security tool or tools that are maybe not super well known, but that InfoSec pros should know about? Yes, I have uh, two of them that I really like uh, that I've trained on a lot is um, there's they're both by SANS. The SANS Institute is the SANS Investigative Forensics Toolkit or SIFT. Uh, and then the reverse engineering malware new user experience, also called Reem, Reemnux, R-E-M-N-U-X, Reemnux. And uh, it's the reverse. So SIFT is for forensics analysts. It has a number of different tools that you can uh, pull images, both static and active images. You can uh, you know gather a bunch of different data. You can you know pull VSS off the off machines and and do all these other different forensics tools uh, and forensic processes. Um, and then the Remnux is about reverse engineering malware. So it's a, it has a lot of similar tools as SIFT, but they are very specifically focused on reverse engineering the malware. And a lot of the tool there's a lot of tools in there, and it's they're essentially Kali Linux for DFIR and reverse engineering. It's all the tools that are right there, configured for you, ready to go. Oh, very cool. I'm going to have to check those out. I asked this one of everyone I have on the show, and it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? Yeah, the future of, of security operations is is AI enhanced. And it, it's it's not AI driven, it's AI enhanced security analysts. So those security analysts that can use a, a system like ChatGPT to search across vast knowledge knowledge bases of client information uh, to be able to find certain data. I mean, just to the point of being able to go, oh, hey, this alert's related to scanning activity that was mentioned in a meeting three weeks ago. Um, and that's just, you know, Intel from gathering meeting data and, and stuff like that and bringing it into that single platform, like we were saying, and then using AI to review that data. Mm -hmm. yes yeah, scopes much larger than a human being could handle oh yes tens i mean you're talking a one to ten ratio uh, analyst to to ai you can it it'd be like samson <laughs> being in your sock <laughs> uh running your you're in your security because it's just he it would be a huge huge bonus and a, a lot of saving my money saving but also time saving and you know uh, analyst burned out saving you can have right Three analysts running a 24-hour operation versus 12. Right. Very cool. Uh, well, Nick, it was very great talking to you. Thanks for uh, being on the show. Uh, look forward to seeing all the cool stuff you come up with uh, going forward. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We've been having a lot of fun putting this show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.